A landmark moment for women's rights in Argentina as abortion is legalised. We get the latest from our correspondent on the ground. Then, being a journalist can still be dangerous work. We dive into the second part of a new report from Reporters Without Borders and we look back at the life and legacy of fashion designer Pierre Cardin. That's all coming up right here on the late edition on Monocle 24. Hello and welcome to the late edition coming to you from Studio One at Midori House in London. I'm Andrew Muller. It is one of those moments that seemed more or less unimaginable right up until it actually happened. Argentina's Congress legalising abortion up to the 14th week of pregnancy. Latin America generally has maintained a hard line on this issue. Elsewhere in the region, abortion is only legal in Uruguay, Cuba, Guyana and parts of Mexico, and then only in limited circumstances. The question thus prompted is, will other dominoes now topple? Well, following the story as it happened was Monocle's contributor in Buenos Aires, Declan McGarvey. Argentina has become the first major country in Latin America to legalise abortion. This after the lawmakers of its National Senate voted to legalise elective abortion in pregnancies of up to 14 weeks. It is a watershed moment for Argentina, the homeland of Pope Francis, and for women's rights. Until now, Argentina has permitted abortion only in cases of rape or where a woman's life was at risk. Women in Argentina have risked imprisonment when undergoing illegal abortions. Many more have died as a result of complications arising from clandestine and unsafe terminations. But now there is a new reality. Argentina's women have won the right to safe, legal abortions free of charge on the nation's public health system. This means I have freedom and control over my own body, said Annabel, one of thousands of women's rights activists gathered in front of the national parliament to hear the vote. I'm so proud, she said, as the yes vote came through. Argentina's history-making vote could also be a landmark moment for Latin America. Argentina becomes only the third country in the region to legalise abortion after Uruguay and Cuba but it is by far the biggest and most populous of these countries, and a ripple effect could soon be felt across Latin America, the world's most Catholic region and home to some of the world's most restrictive abortion laws. And listening to that was Monocle's Latin Affairs correspondent Lucinda Elliott, who joined me a bit earlier. I began by asking Lucinda if this was a historic moment for human rights in Argentina and potentially for the wider region. Well, Argentina, you know, two years ago, actually had a very, very similar bill that was presented to the Senate. um, And it was very narrowly rejected, defeated by only 38 votes to 31. But two years ago, the country was in a very different place. And some would argue that there wasn't the political will that there is now. What has changed in 2020, a fairly catastrophic first year in office for the leftist president, Alberto Fernandez, brought on by the pandemic. Uh, strict lockdowns and an already ailing economy. So he and his ruling party, I'd argue, Andrew, really needed a political win going into the new year, possibly more so than the Conservative President Mauricio Macri did in 2018. Now, that's not to say that this vote should be downplayed in any way. The current, the present law dates back to 1921. <laughs> um, but there was there was sort of serious political workings going on, I'd say, in ahead of this last night. Um, and the bill has been right up there on 
on the agenda for the past five years at least. Lucinda, we heard Declan McGarvey talking earlier there about the possibility of a ripple effect that once a country the size and power and influence of Argentina makes this decision, other countries may follow. Is that likely? I mean, I'd argue it's because of the role of religion in society and politics that it's been much harder outside the smaller countries of Cuba, Uruguay, Guyana and parts of Mexico, as you mentioned, that abortion, abortion is legal in early pregnancy. You know, if you look at the likes of Uruguay or Cuba, they're both secular states. The role of the church has been very much on the periphery for decades. But in the bigger countries like Brazil and Mexico, politicians are very much more linked to the Roman Catholic Church, but also increasingly to evangelical Christianity. I would argue that this will be harder to replicate, this sort of ripple effect that a lot of um, different commentators are saying is going to be particularly hard. I, I did a big investigation into abortion in Brazil this year, and President Bolsonaro of Brazil is a case in point. Earlier this year, the Brazilian health ministry published a technical note as part of just a regular public advice bulletin that highlighted the difficulties some women and girls may encounter during the coronavirus outbreak. And two days later, Bolsonaro tweeted angrily about the note, distorting its contents and saying that the ministry under his watch would not support any proposal to legalise abortion. But the note had made no such proposal. So you see how hard it is when even putting forward a bill in the bigger countries. And um, several women's rights lawyers who I've spoken to say there's no point at this stage, for example, in Brazil, even making such a proposal like that in Argentina because it would be rejected outright. Listen to what kind of tone was the discussion generally conducted in in Argentina and what kind of tone is it conducted in elsewhere in Latin America? Because the abortion debate that most of the rest of the world is most familiar with just because it's the noisiest is, of course, the one that takes place uh, perennially in North America, which is especially by those who characterize themselves as pro-life conducted in these these strains of apocalyptic fundamentalism. Has it has it been more reasonable? in Latin America. Argentina has really built a very broad women's rights movement that has gained momentum over, I'd say, about, about the past decade, really, on issues not just on abortion, but gender violence, domestic violence. And that has sort of drawn enthusiastic support from across the political spectrum. On top of that, you have a fairly solid social media campaign that I think is adding a very different edge to this, perhaps in a similar way, you could say to the Black Lives Matter movement, where the abortion debate under certain hashtags, one is called Neo No Menos, not one more, can be shared beyond borders across different sectors of society. Uh, and some terribly tragic stories also coming to light. There was one recently of an 11 year old girl in Argentina that was refused an abortion after she was after she was raped by her grandmother's partner. And that sort of shared and reiterates not only to senators, but to the wider population to justify why it needs to be allowed in order to protect women. Lucinda Elliott there speaking to us earlier today on The Briefing. Last week saw the initial release of a report from Reporters Without Borders, also known as RSF, and now the second part has been released. A total of 50 journalists were killed worldwide in 2020. While the number of journalists killed in countries at war continues to fall, more are being murdered in countries not at war. Well, earlier, Monocle's Georgina Godwin was joined by Rebecca Vincent, the Director of International campaigns at Reporters Without Borders to hear more about the report's findings. 
So the main findings, again, we're looking at another deadly year for journalists around the world. And the fact that so many journalists were killed in a year where fewer journalists were actually out in the field doing their jobs is really alarming because that, that showed that, you know, the violence is continuing, that the trends that we have highlighted in the past few years are accelerating, um, you know, despite uh, the situation with the pandemic. Um, so you mentioned the figures that more more journalists are being killed in countries at peace. In fact, that was 68 percent of the journalists killed this year were in countries that are not meant to be at war. So these are countries like Mexico, India, the Philippines and Honduras. Um, and 83% of journalists that were killed in 2020 were deliberately targeted. That is a figure that has increased sharply over the past few years. So we're seeing a situation now where fewer journalists are being killed in the field, in the line of work, of their work, right? And uh, fewer being killed in dangerous places, uh, places we think of as conflict zones, and more deliberately being sought out, targeted and murdered in connection with their work. That is very often investigative journalists. Um, and we saw that some of the most dangerous stories this year were people that were covering misuse of public funds, local corruption, organized crime um, and issues like that. And in addition, we had a new trend in 2020 where seven journalists were killed covering protests this year. Mm. Is there anything that links the countries together that are the worst offenders? Um, well, some of the countries that are on the list of deadliest countries this year are longer term offenders. So the deadliest country this year was Mexico, where eight journalists were killed, uh, followed by Iraq with six, Afghanistan with five, Pakistan with four and India with four. And these are countries that have been on the short or slightly longer list for several years now. Um, I think Mexico is really worth uh, examining because the killings there are becoming even more violent, the manner that journalists are being killed is becoming really particularly barbaric. Um, we saw a case of a journalist beheaded this year, another hacked to pieces. Uh, and that is a result of the fact that uh, journalists have been being killed with impunity in Mexico for years now. So that impunity has clearly emboldened those who are committing these acts, and they're doing so in a more barbaric fashion. Also quite shocking uh, was towards the end of the year, the execution by hanging of Ruhol Azam, who is an Iranian journalist who had been living uh, abroad in exile in France. Um, he was uh, lured back, uh, he was lured to Iraq and then brought into Iran, sentenced uh, to death by hanging for corruption on earth. So some really shocking cases this year. Mm. You mentioned the pandemic. How has COVID-19 played into this? So in terms of uh, killings of journalists, um, well, we saw three deaths uh, of journalists that appear to have contracted COVID in prison and did not get adequate treatment for such and so died shortly after their releases. So that was a journalist in Russia, one in Egypt and one in Saudi Arabia. Um, but the pandemic played a clearer role when we look at the detentions of journalists. Um, we were speaking about that uh, just the other week, weren't we? The, the fact that now 387 journalists are detained around the world at the end of the year. Um, the pandemic accelerated arrests earlier this year. From March to May, we saw a fourfold increase in the arrests of journalists and 14 journalists who were arrested in connection with their coverage of the pandemic remain in detention at the end of the year. You talked about Mexico and how these killings seem to be taking place with impunity. Do you think that the advent of Trumpism and calls of fake media have exacerbated the situation? Is it now just acceptable to attack the fourth estate? I mean, over the past few years, we've definitely seen that trend increase as well, that this sort of rise of not just Trump, but that, that strongman model 
um, of leadership and and leaders like Trump in various countries that use hostile language towards the media, that has been more often uh, translating into real life violence. Uh, so certainly that that does impact the climate. And in the United States this year, although we fortunately did not see any journalists killed in connection with their work in the country this year, we did see a lot of aggression against the press Um you know, tear gas, rubber bullets, uh, other deliberate targeting of journalists, not to mention arrests of journalists who were covering protests this year. I think that was a real life manifestation of some of the Trump administration's hostile rhetoric. But this has played out in other countries, too. Um, so the, the Philippines, I mentioned, was one of the countries that is meant to be at peace where journalists were killed. So three journalists were killed with impunity so far in the Philippines this year. Uh, and that is a country where President Duterte continues uh, to use extremely violent rhetoric towards the press. Uh, he's he's infamous for saying things like, just because you're a journalist, you're not exempt from assassination if you're a son of a bitch. So that's that's the attitude there. And we, we do see that manifest in real life violence. So absolutely, uh, leaders have, uh, us, you know, they have responsibility for their words and, and must bear in mind the impact of their actions. Obviously, it's a great thing that your organisation is holding these people to account. But is there anything concrete that can be done to improve the situation? Well, in terms of safety of journalists, one concrete measure that we're advocating is for the establishment of a UN special representative on the safety of journalists. We have called on the UN Secretary General, Antonio Guterres, uh, to create this position. It would be a representative of his office that would be responsible for ensuring that all of the various UN mechanisms that have some responsibility related to this are actually working, that there is follow through, because there there is a large body of international legal framework and there are are parts of the UN that are supposed to be working on this issue, but it's clearly not effective so far. The fact that we're looking at the, a 10-year picture now of 937 journalists who have been killed in connection with their work over the past decade, the vast majority of those cases uh, have been committed with impunity, which simply leaves the door open for further attacks. And until we get uh, control of that until there actually start to be concrete costs imposed on those who are using violence to silence critical voices, this is only going to continue. So we think that the UN has a role to play there. Um, and the creation of this mandate uh, could go a long way in ensuring that everything that exists could actually work properly and that we could start to chip away at this impunity. That was Rebecca Vincent of Reporters Without Borders speaking to Georgina Godwin. And finally, on today's late edition, we look at the passing of a fashion giant, Pierre Cardin, who has died at the age of 98. Credited with bringing menswear to the catwalks, Cardin dressed everyone from the Beatles to Jackie Kennedy, and he leaves behind a legacy of modernist silhouettes and savvy business acumen. The fashion commentator and author Dana Thomas joined me a bit earlier. He started out, he said, as an artist. He he really did love designing and creating ideas and, and looks and working with materials. But then he saw the potential of all these designs in big business. He was the first to really see fashion as a democratic platform, something that could reach everyone. It didn't have to be elitist and haute couture and made to measure and tailoring fashion with a capital F. It could be you know, something branded and 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 taken to ev- to every level of of society, be it scarves and umbrellas, cigarettes, anything he could stamp his name on, he did. And then people bought it, and they had a piece of Pierre Cardin. It was a piece of the dream. He invented that whole idea. And you met him. Was that where he saw the value of what he created? That idea of democratizing this thing, which had always been seen as somewhat unreachable and elitist. 
Yes, absolutely. He was the first to show women's wear and men's wear as ready to wear as opposed to made to measure au couture in fashion shows. And his peers at the Chambre Syndicale de la Haute Couture in Paris were so horrified and basically shocked and and not really, they thought it was beneath all of them, that they kicked him out of the association, which was the governing body at the time for the fa- the French fashion industry. And so he said, well, fine, I don't care. He shrugged it off and, and continued on. And he came up with really cool men's silhouettes and, re- and the space age look for women. And he really did want to reach everyone around the world. His aim was to dress the world. I mean, he did define a moment to a very large extent, and that was in the 1960s, the Beatles, Jackie Kennedy, etc. And it's no small thing to define a moment, but it can become something of a millstone. You sort of get stuck there forever. Did he grow beyond that, not just as a business, but as a designer? Or when we think of Pierre Cardin, are we still thinking of that moment? Well, we think of Pierre Cardin in that moment in design, but in business, my goodness, no. You know, he was the first to break into Japan as a Western designer and open stores and, and, and catered to the Japanese clientele long before they were obsessed with Louis Vuitton bags and, and coach handbags and, and, and Paul Smith suits. And he was the first to go to the Soviet Union when it was still the Soviet Union. And he did a fashion show there and he opened stores there and he made his clothes in the Soviet Union for the Soviet market. He manufactured clothes there. He really did break through these barriers that everyone else really saw as impenetrable and took clothes to as many people, his clothes, as, as possible. So while we may think of the design as space age 1960s, in fact, we, we all have a little bit of Pierre Cardin somewhere in our wardrobes or from our parents' wardrobes or our grandparents' wardrobes. That was the fashion commentator Dana Thomas speaking to us earlier today on The Briefing. And that is all for today's late edition. A big thank you to our producer Carlotta Ribello and to our studio manager Louis Allen. I'm Andrew Mullet here in London. The late edition returns at the same time tomorrow. Goodbye for now and thanks for being with us. <laughs>